Welcome to Stanford Innovation Lab. I'm Tina Seelig, Professor of the Practice in the Department of Management Science and Engineering at Stanford University. This podcast is designed to give you a taste of the topics we explore in our classes on innovation and entrepreneurship. Today's guest is Patricia Ryan Madsen, who's a pioneer in improvisation, which she taught at Stanford from 1977 to 2005. She's the author of a wonderful book called Improv Wisdom. Don't prepare, just show up. I'm sure you'll enjoy her insights on how and why we should incorporate improvisation into our everyday lives. Patricia, it is such a pleasure to have you here. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Tina. I've been looking forward to this. Well, I know that you are the master of improvisation. Can you share what improvisation is and why it's important? Oh, it's a great question because I think when the word comes up for the average person, the first thing that pops to mind is comedy. And while improv can lead to comedy, and uh, sometimes we enjoy how improv is evidenced through that, I see it as a, uh, a modus operandi, a way of doing things. Um, improv is a time-honored approach to all kinds of things. We, uh, in fact, conversation right now, we don't, we're not scripted, so the way that words are coming out of my mouth and your questions are coming out of your mouth is a kind of improvisation. Great. So when did you develop your skills and your interest for improvisation? Well, it was out of sheer panic. I was teaching at Stanford and uh, my students were so bright. They could do anything that I asked them to do if I gave them a direction. But if I asked them, uh, well, what do you think? How would you feel in this situation? They were often dumbfounded. And so I needed to find some kind of a strategy with young actors in the classroom that would allow them to access their own imagination, if you will. Oh, wonderful. So it's really about accessing your imagination. I think so. That's great. So who benefits from this? Is this something that just is uh, for the world of actors? Well, my I think my niche in, this, in the improv world of thinking is... Uh, Improv for everybody. Improv for everyday life. In fact, when I when I pitched my book some years ago, and the uh, the editor said, "Well, uh, who's your audience here?" and I said, "Everybody." Well, uh, that that's the kiss of death because all publishers kind of slap their head. No, no book is for everybody. But it turns out it it was because housewives, businessmen, politicians, uh, academics, everyone's improvising. If you're if you're unless you're on a script. You're, you're improvising. That is, you're trying to use what you already know, the database of your life, in, a, in an artful way to solve an immediate problem. So my sense is that we're, we're all improvisers and everyone can benefit from discovering how, they, uh, how the pros do it, if you will. Great. So let me play you a short clip from Rick Miller, who is the president of Olin College. And he believes the same thing. And so this is kind of interesting. Olin College is a school that focuses on engineering education. And so I'm going to play a short clip where he talks about the importance there. And maybe we can reflect on that. One of our colleagues, Tony Wagner at Harvard, recently wrote a book on creating innovators the making of young people who will change the world. And Tony's done case studies on this, research-based. The bottom line 
The skill that you need is learning how to improvise. It's the sort of question that doesn't have a unique answer. It's a question that has lots of answers that we don't emphasize enough in the engineering education. So is that true, Patricia, that everybody needs to know this? Can you give some examples? Let's dive in and give an example of people who need this and the problems they are prepared to solve once they have better improvisation skills. Well, every, every time you go for a job interview, every time you are at a, um, for example, a funeral and someone taps you on the shoulder and says, say a few words about Martha. Whenever we're called upon to use the knowledge we have and to solve a problem in real time, we're improvising. So it, it, there's almost nothing that's not an example of how we might be able to use improvisation in daily life. So I think one of the important things you're saying is we need to actually view ourselves as improvisers. Perfect, yes. Right, that we're doing it already and we need to actually hone these skills. And there are skills. That's the thing. Often the notion of improvisation brings up the idea of whatever, and that, that it's uh, just uh, being off the cuff, uh, flying by the seat of your pants. When great improvisers are perhaps the most uh, skilled people I know, and that is, what are those skills? The skills have to do with paying attention to what's actually happening right now rather than being off in your head, kind of coming up with a good scheme. That improvisers are almost uh, Zen masters, if you will, of everyday life. They're noticing with 120% of their capacity what's happening right now. In, and so that that observation, that paying attention, is one of, the, one of the skills that we cultivate when we're studying improv. So I know you've been teaching improv at Stanford for many, many years, and uh, you're considered, you know, the, the godmother of this <laughs> field, which has now essentially spawned many, many people who now teach. And uh, these courses are oversubscribed by many orders of magnitude as, as people want to get into these classes. What do you teach in these classes? Well, we're how to pay attention to life, how to accept the circumstance that we're in, without fighting it, and how to build upon what's going on right now in a constructive way. There, we learn the skill of trying to make our partner look good rather than showing up to try to look good ourselves. So it's a shift of emphasis from self to other. And for many of us, that's a, that's a big shift because we're often in our own heads thinking about how can I say something interesting or how can I innovate when innovation may happen, if I'm really noticing what you're doing right now, what you've just said. So it's a highly collaborative process. We teach collaboration in that sense. So how would I learn this, or someone who's listening, learn to do this better if I wasn't in the class? Well, I would say uh, you could decide this afternoon when you uh, go to the grocery store, for example, to notice five new things on your route there. So that might be an attention exercise that's really part of imp improvising that happens when you decide to pay more attention to what's going on. I guess I could also at the store maybe pick up some items I wouldn't normally pick up and then figure out what I'm going to do with them. Kind of like uh, an episode of Chopped where I'm given all these Perfect. ingredients and I have to figure out, okay, how can I whip something wild up exactly. using these surprising ingredients? So yeah, using 
putting things together in an artful way. There's a French word, bricolage, which has to do with always making something artful out of whatever is there rather than trying to come up with what are the best ingredients. So I love your idea of going to the market and picking, mm, I've never used cumin before. Let's put that in the basket and try it with something. So trying new things, most of us are a little nervous about uh, the unknown. In fact, I think the obstacle to improvising is our fear of looking foolish or of, of having it come out not so well. Gosh, if I put cumin in that spaghetti sauce, that might be just horrible and I've wasted all this time. But as improvisers, we discover, you know, there, there, are, there aren't really disasters, they're just events. Or data. Or data. data. More data. I am a huge believer that, uh, that. Right, failure is actually data. In fact, on that note, let me play you a clip from Tom Kelly, who's Ooh. from IDEO, IDEO, who talks know, about uh, essentially the role of improv and experimentation in life. I treat life as an experiment. And this is partly about risk. This is a partly about actually being willing to fail. Because experiments, as I said earlier, they're not all successes. That's why they call them experiments, right? And so if you treat life an experiment, you've got to be prepared for some stuff not to work out. So you can go through your whole life with this method of it's like, look, I'm going to try this. I can put up with anything for a day. I can, you know, I'm going to see how this works. And so you get in the habit of you're failing, but ideally you're failing forward. You're failing in a way that has a little bit of learning attached to each one. And historically, the most famous guy in this experimenter category here in the U.S. is this guy, right? Thomas Edison, right? And do we tend to think of Thomas Edison as a success, right? I think we do. I think he's the most prolific inventor in the history of America. He made, you know, light bulbs, of course, we all know. Phonographs, he's, you know, he had a whole long list of things, including tattoo pens. In fact, I think we're still using Edison's design today in the tattoo pen department. He also left us General Electric, which is going pretty strong uh, still after all these years, 120 years or whatever it is. But Edison, we think of him as success. No, he was piling up all kinds of failures. He wouldn't use that word. At one point in his life, he said, well, I haven't failed. I've just found 10,000 ways that do not work. He was trying to come up with the, the filament for an electric light bulb. 10,000 things he tried. Think how frustrating that must have been. Well, he stuck with it, we, you know, and it worked out pretty well in the end. So he treated life as an experiment. So let's talk about this. Let's talk about the role of failure in experimentation and improv. Because if you're improvising, there are going to be a lot of times where you get very re surprising results. Of course. And even if it feels like data, it still also doesn't feel very good to fail. Uh, the whole word failure uh, is sort of a problem word for me because I don't see, as you point out, data, things that happen that aren't what I hoped would happen, to be anything other than, um, mm, let's see what that is. There's... Improvisers don't are not invested in a particular outcome. They're invested in continuing to work in a uh, in a way that allows them to find something new. So failure, which is which is a word that kind of goes along with right and wrong and with um, um, junior high school. 
that, that there are things at which we can fail, the improviser, it's not in his or her vocabulary. It, there's a way in which there are a variety of outcomes. And if you, if you find you're, if you're able to detach from a particular outcome, then failure doesn't, isn't a concept that's, uh, that applies. Does that it make seems, sense? Yeah, it seems sort of like a martial art, right? As something comes at you, you might not know what it is, but you figure out some way to respond to it and turn it into something that's negative into something that's positive. Perfect. It is. And that, that improvisers don't, they don't look at what the result should be. They're simply responding to what's happening, to the thing that they're trying or the thing that comes at them, and using all of their positive energy to make sense out of it. That sounds kind of complicated, um, but it happens sort of in a flash. When you uh, decide in advance that you're going to be open and accepting to what comes your way, rather than I'm going to judge it first and decide whether I like it or not. I think that's, that's much more an academic um, approach that I will, uh, hmm, I'll take a look at that and I'm not sure. So uh, that's the critical method that actually is very valuable in some ways in, in, in education. But the improviser's mind is one in which we're disposed to being open to any possibility and we don't judge it in advance. We work with it until we make it a win or find something in it. So this sounds very similar to the yes and mentality yes. that we learn a lot at Stanford D School, uh, the idea of sort of saying yes to something and building on it. Perfect. That's exactly what improvisers do. What th They start with the notion that we already have what we need. We're not lacking anything, but here we are together and we're trying to make something, but we don't... Um, we don't go in search of some unusual components. We take what's right in front of us and decide, I'm going to open myself to that idea, accept it, and build on it. The yes and is really powerful. Uh, when we start playing games that invite us to do yes and, we notice how often we want to say yes but that humans are cautious. It's that fear of not, uh, not looking smart or something that would allow us to hold off or distance ourselves before we commit to it. It's um, improvisers are ready, fire, aim. <laughs> they jump right in. Well, one of my favorite activities is having people come up with the worst ideas yes. for a particular oh, um, prompt, yeah. and then they have to make it into something good. So it, it's, is that the same type of uh, improv exercise where you have to take something that even someone thought was bad and turn it into something good? Exactly, except we, we kind of get rid of the good and bad. It's like all ideas are equally valid is the premise on which improv plays. Now that sounds kind of crazy because in life certainly all ideas are not equally valid. But if you approach them as an improviser, you approach them with that mindset. So there's no such thing as the worst idea. There's just, hmm, well... You can come up with it by thinking, what's the worst thing I could do here? And as you know from that exercise, students find brilliant resolutions. And so um, once we get rid of the notion that there's a worst, then the world of possibility opens up. Now you talk about being average. Mm -hmm. And 
I'm curious how that fits into this. Sure. Well, that's, uh, I think that's a favorite conundrum for Stanford students for, for whom the idea of average is just the worst possible thing that they could imagine. They'd rather, rather fail than be average. It's a trick if you think about it. If I say, uh, just do an average poem for me, it takes the pressure off of the person from having to do their best which this doing my best or coming up with a great idea is a limiting mindset. What it does is it puts pressure on you and your own best natural response isn't available. So what I'm hoping with the notion of encouraging people to be average is realistically it allows them just to keep working rather than to have gridlock over fear of not having it excellent. So is this really all about taking risks and getting yourself out of your comfort zone and learning how to to stretch yourself to take risks that you might not have taken before? I think so, and I think it's redefining risk. Finally, that word, you don't think of it as risk. It's, oh, I don't know where I'm going, but let's see. So there's a try-see attitude that uh, is pervasive, and risk in is is part of this value system where you if you risk you can fail but if there isn't risk but there's there's just trying and seeing then uh, who knows you you get out of that evaluative mind that i think is what uh, often keeps us from our best ideas can you give some examples of ways that you get people to to start taking some risks some of the exercises you might use well, we we uh, we build stories together. If uh, if you gave me three words, any three words that are not connected to each other, and I on the spot have on go have to take those three words and create a story. For example, what that does is it puts my mind into the building on ideas and using things uh, constructively. I think everything in a way that we don't know what the outcome is going to be invites you to risk. Let me play a clip by Peter Diamantis. He's a pretty remarkable guy. He's the founder of the X Prize Foundation and Singularity University. And he's one of these people who goes off and mines asteroids. There's nothing that stops him from reaching his dreams. And he's talking about the fact that, uh, well, what happens and what's the benefits of taking some risks? I was in a congressional hearing, um, and uh, one of the Congress, congresswomen stood up and said, Dr. Diamandis, um, aren't you, in fact, going to cause people to kill themselves as they go after this X Prize? And I was really taken aback by, by the question. And I, I thought for a moment, and I answered her in the following way. I said, um, 500 years ago, Thousands of people gave their lives as they crossed the Atlantic to open up this great nation. You know, 200 years ago, thousands gave their lives again to op- you know, as they crossed the Great Plains to open up the West. And you're telling me on the verge of the greatest human exploration ever, people shouldn't risk their lives? That's un-American. And she didn't follow up with any further questions. <laughs> but it's true. You know, if you stop and you think about it, the greatest, you know, to, to have... True breakthroughs require taking risk. You know, the day before something is truly a breakthrough, it's a crazy idea. 
What do you think? Do we have to take some risks, some really bold risks? Of course. Uh, nothing's going to happen if we don't do that. But the, the problem we're having here is, is a linguistic one because I don't see things as risks. I see, I see outcomes that I don't know what they're going to be. And somehow just the word risk creates a new filter, something I have to get over. So I love this. This is so fascinating because you said there are no bad ideas, there are no risks, there's no failure. Can one really live their life this way, not seeing risk, not seeing the potential for failure? I think you... You're crazy if you don't notice, for example, if you're trying to cross a street where cars are coming fast at you in all directions, that there is danger. I think humans, of course, notice the reality around them. But I I can testify that I'm every day around professional improvisers who don't see the world as Uh, from the vantage point, as a risky place. They look at it as opportunity and that sometimes the choices that they make going forward don't work out as expected. So how does this work in real life? How does this actually get implemented by someone once they've come out of these programs where they've learned these skills? How does it manifest? I think it manifests in greater attention to life and greater appreciation. I haven't, one of the things I haven't mentioned is that improvisers are predisposed to value things in a positive way. They're uh, to appreciate, to notice that we call it wake up to the gifts, that we look at something that comes our way uh, with the eye of appreciation. So Cancer hits me. That is certainly uh, not something that I'm really happy about, right? But can I look at it from the vantage point of, hmm, I've got an improvisation here. What can I do? How can I move forward in my life with the reality that has come to me and make sense out of it? How can I keep going forward in a positive way? Let me ask you a question, though. Not everybody has these skills. So if I'm working with other people and I'm an amazing improviser and I take whatever comes to at me and I'm really good at framing things in a positive way, but my colleagues or my family or my friends don't do that, how do you react? It's the same principle that's in Aikido, that something comes at you that's a negative thing or different from the skill that you have, you have to accept that too. It's that... We have to keep that ability to open and explore and embrace all the things that come our way. So it's, 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 and that's not easy. I would say that, that even the professional improvisers who seem to um, be very good at this, we all have trouble opening ourselves again and again to something that's, uh, that we don't like. But I do think that the the challenge is to is to develop a mindset that continues continues to do that even with the people around you that aren't improvisers or who aren't doing it your own way it's this ultimate acceptance of reality acceptance of other people acceptance of your own frailty uh, even accepting the unacceptable 
do you find that you can do this all the time? Or do you find that you sometimes uh, fall into a, a black pit and you go, oh, I didn't react the way a of real improviser course. would have? Of course. But I know better. I might fall in that pit or uh, in a pity party or something. I, I, I'm human. We all are. And we react through life from a, uh, I like this or I don't like this point of view. I think the gift that improv has given me is that when I get to that little black uh, hole, I've got, I've got something to hold on to, um, a kind of an affirmation about let's keep opening, you can make something of this, that improvisation is both optimistic and collaborative, but it's work. You have to keep working your mind to bring it back to the positive. As we know, the media and the world's full of negativity. And if you just buy into it, it can kind of ruin your day. But if you can bring that improv mind back, I make these edigami cards that are uh, little pieces of art with good advice on them. And my, my favorite now is a picture of a kind of a, an owl that says, life is good even when it isn't. And so I think that improv as a, um, I keep using the word mindset, is a way of constantly um, reminding ourselves that we can, um, there's optimism, there's hope, and that we can, we can work out of almost any difficulty. Wonderful. I love that, uh, that phrase, life is good, even when it isn't. Even when it I'm going to take that with me for the rest of the day. Great. Thank Th you. Thank you so much. My pleasure. This podcast is brought to you by Stanford eCorner and the Stanford Technology Ventures Program, the Entrepreneurship Center at Stanford School of Engineering. Stanford Innovation Lab is produced and edited by Eli Shell. Our digital solutions manager is Sarah Kahn, with software development by Davor Senkovic. Our designer is Daniel Stusi, and communications and marketing are led by Mike Pena and Monica Yort. You can find additional podcasts, videos, and articles at ecorner.stanford.edu. And we'd love to hear your thoughts on both this podcast and our ETL series. So please follow us on Twitter and eCorner. And if you're a fan of the series, please leave a review on iTunes. Finally, remember, entrepreneurs do much more than imaginable with much less than seems possible.